This is Childhood Heroes, and I'm Laura Wyatt-Smith. This podcast explores the big issues affecting modern childhood through conversations with inspiring subject experts. And we ask the question, is childhood today better or worse than a generation ago? There's more than 100,000 young people in the UK today who are in the care system, which means that the state is their legal guardian because their own parents can't look after them for whatever reason. These children are arguably the most vulnerable children in our society, but whilst the care system does work well for some and is full of hardworking and brilliant individuals, it's also seriously complex, full of challenges, and many young people still go without the support that they desperately need. Hugh Thornbury CB has spent his whole career supporting children in the care sector, working so hard to drive up standards, and he's seen it evolve over a generation. Having worked with Hugh, I can also attest that he is a superb leader, he is calm, he is clear, and he is kind. Today we discuss the evolution of the care system, access to children and adolescent mental health services for the most vulnerable and how everybody should spend more time in the great outdoors, especially our leaders. So Hugh, a pleasure to have you here on Childhood Heroes. I'd love to start our conversation by asking about your childhood. If you could maybe tell us a little bit about that. Uh, what was life like for you as a child growing up in the UK? And maybe if you have one, um, who was your childhood hero when you were young? Okay. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me. Um, well, I grew up uh, in post-war Britain um, in a pretty traditional white middle-class family. I was born in 1955, uh, not long after rationing finished. And that seems like a different, well, it is a different age now, isn't it? It's a long, it's a long time ago. Um, my parents um, were both married to other people in the war. Uh, one of those sort of rush decisions they both made. I think a lot of people did during the wartime. Um, and they they uh, met each other just after the war. They got married in 1950 and uh, had made their first child in 1955. And my brother arrived five years later in 1960. Um, I was born in working in Surrey, but my father, who was um, running the family business, um, the manufacturing bit of the business relocated uh, from London to Wolverhampton. Um, so we as a family, the three of us, when I was two months old, moved to Wolverhampton. Uh, and we lived in a kind of big, large 1930s semi-detached house, which had its own large garden and then a lot of land at the back of everybody else's gardens. And behind that, there was fields and green belt. And I say all of that because... Um, key thing for me throughout my life has been sort of enjoying the, the outdoors exploring and so on. Well, I was an only child for five years and there was no other um, friends my parents had who had um, children my age. So uh, once I was sort of a bit more independent, I spent most of my time in the garden, hiding behind the shrubbery when I was a bit older, climbing apple trees. Um, and then extending a bit further afield and going pond dipping and things like that in the land behind the, behind the house. And my heroes um, were adventurers primarily. Um, and those sort of key 
post-World War II figures who engaged in highly risky activities because the war had finished, but that, <laughs> that sort of thirst for risk and danger continued. Um, so I sort of absorbed uh, Swallows and Amazons and all the whole canon of Arthur Ransom because um, they were children like me who were, they weren't alone, they were, they were their friends, but they were having sort of mini adventures. And that's what I then replicated in our garden and, and elsewhere. I was adventuring. I was living that out that stuff. Uh, Jim Clark, the racing driver, um, who I think died in 1968. Donald Campbell, the land speed and water speed record holder, who died in 1967, I think, were, were my idols. I wanted to be them. One of my favourite games indoors was to use my mum's washing line to tie all my teddies together and to bring them up the stairs. And in my mind, I was Scott of the Antarctic, pulling people out of crowds like that. that. That sort of shaped me. And um, I mean, interestingly now, uh, I've started retraining to be a, a climbing instructor and I'm a qualified mountain leader. That was something I could have done as a career. Um, but I went off in a different direction into, into social work. But all my play was geared to being an adventurer. It sounds idyllic it was i was very privileged you know and i'm one of those fortunate people who you know had a very stable happy childhood school wasn't great for me i had a private education both at infants and sort of primary and uh, i went to prep school and i went to a sort of fairly second-rate public school didn't really enjoy school my mum kept all my um school reports and after she died i read them all thinking they're not mm -hmm. as bad as i remember them and from the age of about eight onwards, they are. Um, I didn't. I was very shy, so I didn't sort of ask questions in class. Or if I did ask, if I did answer questions in class and got it wrong, I'd be so embarrassed. I'd be mortified. You know, I couldn't say anything else again. Um, and I pretty much sort of disengaged from academic stuff, pre-O levels. Managed to scrape through those okay, and then sort of pretty much gave up after that. Um, I liked other things at school. I, that's where I learned to rock climb. I used to like doing athletics and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, no major dramas in my childhood. Privileged, secure, uh, and mostly happy. So, Hugh, I'm really interested then that you mentioned you started out in social work. And obviously, since that time, you've, you've remained working in pretty much the children and youth services sector. You were awarded your CB in 2016 for services to children and families. So I'd really like to, to hear a little bit more about how did your career evolve? Why did you start out in social work particularly? And, and, and what have been your professional interests over your career? Well, social work was a complete accident. Um, and when I left school hadn't failed my, failed my A-levels and having decided previously I didn't want to go to university because I had enough of education. Um, I, I sort of just stayed in bed most of the day until my dad said he wasn't going to let me do that anymore. I needed to go and earn some money. My first job was working in a foundry. I stayed there for about six months and then went off to Arctic Norway on an expedition. Uh, second job was um, cashier in a petrol station, stay there until another opportunity to go off and do something exciting came along. Um, and then I got a job in a climbing shop, and that was the key thing to getting into social work. So I was with people who had similar interests to me. Uh, one day somebody came in and bought 30 pairs of walking boots, and I said, well, what do you want 30 pairs of walking boots for? And he said, oh, well, we're doing this new work with young offenders in the community, and a lot of it's sort of outdoor stuff. Is anybody here, would anybody here be interested in sort of, you know, going out, taking kids out into the hills and mountains and rock climbing. I said, oh, I would. 
Um, and I thought it was voluntary and it was in my hometown, Wolverhampton. Um, and that opened my eyes then to a completely different world that from my privileged sort of middle class background, I hadn't experienced at all possible Wolverhampton I'd never been to people living in circumstances that, you know, were completely out of my experience. Um, so I started doing that just on a sort of sessional basis, they were paying me, which was nice. Um, and then an un unqualified job came up running the sort of activity centre, the base for all the stuff they were doing in Wolverhampton, and it had accommodation on site, and I was ready to leave home. Um, so that worked well. And um, the Wolverhampton Council seconded me to do my social work qualification. Um, and within sort of a couple of years of, of being qualified, I was then managing the service there. And I, I spent the first part of my career, first third of my career working in, in local government in, in Wolverhampton, um, developing and, and running services for um, primarily sort of adolescents in, in difficulty, whether that was at risk of um, harm in different ways or, or those who were involved in the criminal justice system. So I never set out to be a social worker. I got into it through my interest in the outdoors. And um, it took quite a long time for me to sort of identify as a social worker, because what we were doing was a bit on the fringes of social work. It was sort of different stuff. It was quite new at the time. OK, Hugh, so you were CEO of Adoption UK for nearly five years up until 2017, and you've been chair of Become for the last few years and Become is the charity for children in care. Can you tell us more about the care sector itself? It's obviously become your area of expertise. What actually is the care sector for those listeners that might be unfamiliar? And why do young people end up in it? OK, well, the care sector is part of children's social care, which is a sort of wider network of services and responsibilities local authorities and others deliver to, to support children with their families. Um, and becomes focus then is on those children who come into public care now, in the past, that would have been coming into children's homes. The majority of children now in care, um, three quarters of them live with foster carers, although there are still some who will be in, in children's home accommodation. The reason children come into care is that a court, well, uh, there will be an initial decision made by uh, social workers, but eventually the court will decide whether or not uh, a care order should be granted. And care orders are normally sought by a local authority where they believe that the child is at risk of serious harm or neglect. That could be physical abuse, sexual abuse, or, or general neglect, you know, and the failure to thrive. Um, and what we've seen over the last few years uh, is a rise in the number of children coming into care. Um, and that followed a period when there was quite a big investment in services to keep children safely with their families. Um, and listeners may remember the baby Peter case, a uh, very tragic mm -hmm. death of a child and the parents. Um, uh, and that precipitated uh, a less, uh, a, a more risk averse approach really across social work because, because of the criticism that was made of the local authority that should have been safeguarding baby Peter. Um, I think generally there's been a, a more risk averse approach, which has led to a pretty steady increase in the number of children coming into the care. Um, some children will spend brief periods of time in care. Others, once they come into care, will then spend their, their full childhood and adolescence in, in care. Most children who leave care go back home to their families at some point. And often you will see a pattern of children coming into care. Things get a bit better, they go back home. 
things deteriorate, they come back into care. Um, and an important principle for those of us involved with uh, these children is the idea of permanence. Um, because there's nothing more difficult for a child than uncertainty and frequent changes. Um, children need, you know, I benefited from great continuity of parenting. I knew my parents were always there for me. Um, these children often don't get that continuity. So if a child does come into pet care, one's trying to either quickly return them home, if that's the plan, and then support that return home, or if they're going to stay in care for the duration, the ideal is for them to be in a stable placement where they can build strong relationships and long-lasting relationships with their foster carer or with the children or with the staff in the children's home. Um, at the moment, there's about uh, 107,000 children in care in the UK. Just over 80,000 of those are in England. Um, and about half of them are aged between 10 and 18. And one of the rises we've seen in the care population recently has been older children coming into care, unaccompanied asylum seekers. There's an item on Channel 4 News last night where Matt Dunkley, the Director of Children's Services in Kent, was saying that he thought his services were going to be overwhelmed by the weekend and he wouldn't be able to meet his statutory responsibilities more because there were so many young pe unaccompanied young people arriving, which he had a duty to accommodate in care. That's a sort of localised thing, um, but it is the case that, that adolescents uh, often come into the care system when their behaviour is such that it's really unmanageable for parents. But we've also seen a rise in children coming into care straight after birth. Um, and again, there was an item on the news the other day about, about that on, um, on Radio 4, and there's concerns that um, that's very variable. So one of the things one does see is different proportions of children coming into care in different parts of the country. So there's a, there's a, there is a large amount of geographic variance then in terms of the approaches of taking children into care? There or? is, and that worries the leadership of the judiciary of the family courts um, because you know, judges would like to see a, a fair system and not a postcode lottery, as, as we all would. We hear sort of high profile cases of um, young people in the care system who actually don't even understand the reasons why they were in care or maybe struggling to access reports of, you know, what their childhood was like. So adults later in life coming back and asking, what happened to me? What was my family circumstance? Why was I removed? Can you maybe provide some colour to that situation? What are some of the misconceptions about the care system and children in it? So because children are coming into care primarily um, because they've been neglected or abused, as a consequence of that, they've been traumatised and that affects their mental health. And, and some of those effects, and I've seen this with many adopted children as adopted in the UK, last well into adulthood. Um, and many children carry um, a false sense of guilt where they've been abused. They think it's their fault, they've caused it for some reason. Um, many are very um, unclear about their backgrounds. Um, sometimes children don't know enough about their own histories to be able to sort of make sense of it. Um, and often the right level of service isn't there to help them be able to work through that, that trauma. 
The other trauma they're experiencing is um, separation and loss. Um, a lot of children in care suffer as a consequence of the fact that they lose contact with their siblings. Because sometimes children aren't placed together, either for adoption or or in foster care. I mean, that, that's a big issue, isn't it? A massive issue. I mean, if we all, if we think about how important our sort of not only our parents are, but our friends and our relations, whether they're siblings, uncles, aunts, and so on. If you're removed from all of that, as some children are, and some children are placed a long, long way from their home. So they lose everything in life, although they need to be removed from home because of the risk that they're under. That's not to say that all the relationships they have at home or, or in their wider community are negative ones. So they lose their friends, they'll lose their teacher, they'll lose their classmates, they'll lose contact with their siblings often or, or wider family members. Um, and even if contact is maintained with some of those, the trauma of being removed from something you're familiar with, your home and your parents, and placed somewhere else, and then maybe placed somewhere else again, and then maybe placed somewhere else again, because a high number of children, um, one in 10 children in care, have three or more placements a year. So, a year? Yeah. Not in their childhood? In a year. A year. So they're moving home, family, possibly school. Yeah. Losing all their friends. Yeah. And they're, they're going through that three times a year. Yeah. Imagine how That's any of us... pretty stark, isn't You it? or I... Not only dealing with the trauma. Yeah. Yeah. So you've got that background trauma, the abuse or neglect you've experienced. You've then got all those who are And those who've been through that, um, the last thing they need is for a public perception... Um, or the perception of teachers or other professionals they may come into contact with, that it's their fault that they're in the care system in the first place. It never is. Um, or that the behaviours they might be existing, uh, I, I, again, are sort of negative things. Those, those behaviours come from the trauma of that in the first place, whatever caused them to come into care. And, and then the sort of consequent things of that sort of separation and loss and uncertainty. And um, much is made of the fact that the care system fails. And if you look at the outcomes for many who are in care, behind their peers who've had you know, upbringings in, in family life, like I did, um, you know, they're more likely to be um, involved in sort of harming or self-harming activities. They're more likely to be involved in dependency on alcohol or drugs, they're more likely to get involved in the criminal justice system, uh, they're less likely to be able to access higher education, they're more likely to be unemployed long-term and so on. Um, now, there's no doubt that the care system could do better. We might want to come on to that. Um, but there's also no doubt that the care system is dealing with children who have suffered significant harm in different ways we've just been talking about before they come in children being removed from families at a very early stage uh, where, you know, mothers are not entrusted with the the upbringing of their children because of past histories of their own. And it's the, it's the, it's the intergenerational re-traumatising experiences uh, which are feeding this damaging sort of cycle, I believe. Yes, and I think we have evidence from initiatives in this country, but also elsewhere internationally. If you do the right things at an early enough stage, you, you can break those cycles. Um, and 
um, I have a number of people who um, are care experienced uh, on the board of Become, which I've recruited recently. Yes. So half our board has experience of being in care themselves. And so that's six people who have very, very different stories to tell. Um, some who've had the most awful experiences of care. And others who talk about care as being something that was positive, formative, has enabled them to, you know, begin to make a real success of their lives, doing well at university, doing well at the early stages of their careers and, and so on. And I think um, what has definitely happened over time is that the quality of the care system has improved. Um, it was one of those areas of society where um, there was significant um, historic um, abuse of children. Yeah, we've seen it in other areas of public life as well, haven't we? Um, but it was definitely the case that um, the arrangements were such that the wrong people ended up being able to be in positions of authority over, over children in, in residential settings. Um, things that, let's not say that, that never happens anymore, but, but the safeguards and arrangements are much, much stronger than they, they used to be. We have a strong system of inspectorate. Um, we have a more qualified workforce. Um, uh, and we have moved away from a reliance on residential care to the majority, as I said earlier, being in foster care, which is good because that's more like family life. It's not suitable for every child, but, but it's for most being in a family rather than being in an institution is, is, is a positive thing. And is, is that how it's generally seen in the sector that... Uh, foster care is the the most preferable option where possible and where not possible you move on to um, more specialized residential in um, yes. child care is that right and and I know of children who have been so damaged by their experiences of family life that a family is something you cannot trust and would prefer to be in residential care because it doesn't bring all the condemnation uh, 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 of family life and there are some normally young people normally adolescents um, whose behavior is so challenging that it cannot be managed within a foster care environment and it needs a higher level of sort of super supervision and, uh, and support and for a minority of children um, there is secure accommodation where the, those children might be a real risk to themselves e.g you know very very likely to to severely self-harm or commit suicide or a real risk to others but that's a very small minority and and on that um obviously if we consider behavior as a as a form of communication uh, as, a, as a way to express any of the hurt and pain or trauma that has been experienced then it, it would make sense that the solution to that is support for mental health support for processing these experiences and so i'm interested what is mental health support like for young people in and around the care system? Is it is it better than it was? Is there enough of it? Could we be doing more? One of the sort of enduring things um, over all of that period of time has been the paucity of uh, effective mental health support for children and young people. Um, that which exists can be a very high quality, but it's very limited. Your needs have to be very high before you get over the threshold to access it. 
Um, and often then there is, even if you do get over that threshold, you can be waiting 12, 18 months. 12, 18 months in the life of an eight-year-old is a long, long time. Long time for anybody. Um, and the, despite I mean, the coalition government um, committed to do something about this from sort of 2010 on, onwards, but we didn't see much progress really. And then um, we've seen cuts in public services since. Um, the, the child and adolescent mental health services are overwhelmed by the level of demand and completely unable to, to meet need. And some of them aren't specialist enough. Often the, the mental health service approach is to treat the child as a patient, see their behaviour in isolation of anything else. Um, many adopted families, many adopted parents used to really struggle with the fact that um, they were sort of sidelined from that, that, that process. So an overly medical model rather than a social model. Uh, and adopted parents or foster carers or staff in children's homes ultimately are the main agents of change in a child's life because they're the ones who are with the child all the time. Um, so one of the things that works well is if there's that sort of more holistic approach, understanding that child's needs in the context of what's happened to them in the past and also understanding how their needs could be met, not just by professional intervention, but be carried through by the, those who are caring or parenting the child. And there's no sign of that getting any better, really. I mean, I think it's been acknowledged for a long time. There's a big gap there, but we just haven't seen sufficient investment. There's not sufficient investment in mental health services generally. They're not great for adults. Um, the children still seem to be sort of... Um, you know, second in the list of priorities. And what, why do you think that is? And how, how can we resolve that? I think the sort of approach, the policy approach to mental health, I think understands the value of sort of intervening early, but it's an expensive service. And I think there is insufficient focus on equipping other professionals, whether that's teachers, social workers, youth workers and so on, with the skills and knowledge to be able to provide a more sort of you know, lower level of support. I think things are changing there, but there isn't an investment in that. And teachers have a big, you know, you've been a teacher. It's a tough enough job just focusing on yeah. ensuring children, you know, meet their, their sort of learning targets, their academic achievements. Taking on all those other issues as well is probably beyond the sort of capacity, even the, sort of, the investment was there good quality long-term therapy is only available to the minority who can afford it. The majority who have the greatest need can't afford to pay for it themselves and the state doesn't provide sufficient resource for them. And I can't tell you how many roundtables I've been in involved with officials from the Department for Education uh, and the Department of Health over the years. Uh, and at that sort of level, it's acknowledged that there's a big gap here. Uh, and joining up is required for children. Um, and then it goes away again in another couple of years' time. I'd be invited to another round table. We'd have exactly the same discussion, normally with the same sort of people. Um, and it just doesn't register high enough in a world where there's real concerns about the level of money that's been spent on a whole range of things, not least the NHS. And then I think the focus on the NHS is less on mental health and more on all the other issues at the moment. So it, it never gets 
sufficiently up the agenda. But the cost then of not dealing with it effectively is really high because we then we'll pick up the cost in other ways, normally in the criminal justice system or through the benefit system and so on. We're in a situation now where COVID has cost the country you know, a huge amount of money and continues to do so. It was difficult to be arguing for additional resources for these services before COVID came along. It's even harder now. And without making a political point, because um, it's successive governments have kicked some of those big difficult issues down the road. So adult care is an example of that. The other side of it, because I've been talking about all the difficulties that those coming into the care systems may have, is that what really strikes me, and I think this is about how one changes the public perception, because if you're if you're you know deemed to be difficult and a troublemaker and all the rest of it, people are going to be looking favourably on your job application and so on. The level of resilience and skills um, and self-knowledge that many children in care build up is remarkable, absolutely mm. remarkable. And I think in the world of work, and we said it's in this through COVID, you want people who are adaptable, who are resilient, who are able to deal with change, um, who are independent in terms of their thinking and so on. And the care experience shapes people in quite a unique way, I think, from what I've seen. So even those who've had very difficult experiences, it's remarkable what they're able to achieve in their lives. Um, so if I could give you a magic wand and say you could change one thing about the care system today, what would you wish for? What would you make happen? Just one thing. Okay. Only I? one, yeah. <laughs> I talked about permanence earlier. And I, I think that the biggest difference that we could make is for those who do come into care to have that sense of permanence. So uh, they're settled, they can de develop long-lasting, trusting, supportive relationships and know that somebody's always going to be there for them. And um, when I was at Adoption UK, we did a big piece of policy work with um, Become and about seven other charities. Um, and the biggest lesson that came out of that in sort of the evidence we took from a whole range of people, not least those who've been in care themselves, um, was uh, the importance of those relationships. And we called the report um, after a quote that uh, a young person in care uh, gave us in their evidence, um, making not breaking. And that young person saw care, public care, as a process of continually breaking relationships, first with the birth family and then with successive carers if there was different placements. Um, and often those relationships were broken forever. And even if a child comes into care, that doesn't, that doesn't mean they can't have a positive relationship if it's safe for them and they want it with their birth parents or with their siblings or other extended family members. So it's not a one-way door where you leave everything behind or what it shouldn't be, but it too often is. So that sense of permanence, both of who you're going to be living with, but also being able to maintain 
what were previously important relationships and will always be important relationships. I saw my brother. That's really powerful. Saw my brother yeah. this last weekend for the first time in over twelve months. Uh, I don't see him that often. I just, you know, when he told me he, was be, he could come and stay with me for the weekend, I was most person to see us. I didn't realise how much I missed him until I realised I was going to see him again. But I always know he's there, and I always know he can come and see me, and I can go and see him. And, it, and because you're an adult, you can pick up the phone if you want to, and, and you've got the power. So, you know, and even with those things, how challenging it's been for all of us as adults with the freedom to at least speak or yeah. FaceTime and yet it's been hard enough um, to be a, a powerless child really and to have those repeatedly those relationships repeatedly broken it's kind of beyond comprehension really I think for the majority of us yes and I, and I think you know that trauma that we were talking about the need for mental health services that we've been talking about that would all be reduced if if children and young people in care could really feel confident that they had long-term lasting relationships uh, to remove that level of uncertainty in their life. Because it's, it's the uncertainty that affects all of us, isn't it? You know, if we know something's going to happen, we can then think, okay, well, we're going to deal with that. If you're never quite sure whether this is going to be your last day staying in this bedroom, yeah. that's a difficult thing to be dealing with. Absolutely. That's never going to give you a sense of well-being. Absolutely. So we've talked a lot about some of the challenges and the, the real sort of extreme difficulties facing young people. We've also talked about the resilience that that builds and how despite that many young people come out, you know, really in an amazing way, having yeah. overcome the odds. But could you just talk now for a moment about what has got better in a generation? So many people are committed to this. How have things potentially improved in some ways? The law now recognises the fact that you're not a fully formed adult at 16 or 18. Um, and therefore, there's a duty to be supporting those who leave care into, into their early mid-20s. We have moved from an unqualified workforce, primarily in residential care, to, to a qualified and better trained workforce. Um, we've moved to for want of a better term, and almost a sort of professional model of foster care, where there's a real recognition that fostering a child in care takes up a huge amount of time. So we reward foster carers in a way that enables them to focus on that rather than having to go out eight hours for a job and then try and pick all the pieces up when they come home from work. Um, I think we have got um, much better at, and this has been a real focus for me, at become because of my leadership of the board of ensuring that as an organisation, um, we, we fully understand that we can't do things well unless we're fully informed by the experience of those in care or those who have been in care. You know, bottom line is not enough money spent. Every director of children's services I've met, everybody who's a foster carer, working in residential care, wants to do a really good job. You know, this, there is a professional workforce out there uh, and volunteers who are absolutely committed to delivering the best they can. Quite often, they don't have sufficient resources to be able to do that. Compared to a generation ago, do you think, based purely on the care sector alone, that childhood is better or worse today? I think it is. Um... I think some of the dreadful things that used to happen in care 
more commonly don't now. I think the quality of care is better. I think our understanding of children's needs and the consequences of loss and trauma has evolved enormously. Um, is care as good as it could be? No. I would hope if we had a conversation in 10 years time that uh, I could talk about further improvements. Um, become, as with every charity, would in a way like not to exist. I'd like to, I, you know, it'd be nice to say to everybody around the table, okay, well, we've done our job. Yeah, there's nothing more for us to do here now. This is a good system and we have confidence that it will continue to be a good system. I think it's, it won't be me that has that conversation around the board table. <laughs> It'll be probably not my successor, but hopefully my successor's successor will be able to do that. You'll be off in the great outdoors, rock climbing, <laughs> <laughs> uh, re living out your Bear Grylls dream. <laughs> um, I, um, on, on that note, um, I mean, you are married to Polly Neat, uh, CBE, who's the CEO of Shelter. Yeah. You both have, you know, big careers are, and you've focused on really emotive, heart-hitting topics, trying to improve the lives of children, young people and, and adults you know, who are experiencing really difficult circumstances, it must be hard not to bring your work home with you. How, so how do you maintain your perspective and take care of yourselves on a personal and a professional level so that you can be at your best and make the biggest possible impact for, for young people? Is the outdoors the answer? I <laughs> think the, um, yeah, and we, we have common interests. Um, what we enjoy doing is cycling, sea kayaking, and rock climbing. And um, we try and carve out as much time during the week on a regular basis to do the cycling and the climbing. The sea kayaking is a bit more difficult because we don't live by the sea. The value of that, I think, is enormous because um, being a chief executive of a charity is a stressful job, quite a lonely job. The fact that Polly is and I have been helps in terms of our sort of mutual understanding of what each other sort of is dealing with. So we, you know, we're, we're each other's sort of mentor and coach at times. That's that's a benefit because we trust each other's view and perspective, and we have different views and perspective on things. Um, but what we both try and model. And Polly does this more actively because she's CEO at the moment. I'm in governance roles, which is a bit more sort of um, distant. Is finding a way during the working week. It doesn't have to be saved up to the weekend. Weekends can be very demanding if you've got children on. Finding a way during the working week to find that space to be able to either switch off completely. So when I go cycling, I switch off. I don't think about anything other than cycling. Uh, when Polly goes cycling, she's doing all of that, working through stuff. Yeah, cognitive processing. Yeah. Climbing demands your absolute full attention. So we both switch off completely <laughs> when we're, we're climbing, otherwise it's a bit dangerous. Um, and it, it doesn't have to be sort of physical outdoor activities. 
but I think for anybody, I said just generally for the population, anybody who's working in this sector, which is challenging and stressful and emotional, um, you have to have something that provides you with that release. So it could be doing embroidery, but try and fit it in every day. Yeah, and, and what Polly's really good at, I'm less good at, but I've got better, is in actively planning that stuff in. So in looking at her calendar right. for the week, she will have planned in when those opportunities are to go climbing. And it's not like slipping off away from work, sneaking away. It, people know that she's doing it. They see it on her social yeah. media. Um, <laughs> but that's part of the modelling that, you know, if you're going to be effective in these roles, you have to look after yourself. And a way of looking after yourself is to find whatever it is, whether it's climbing or embroidery or flower arranging, um, that gives you that ability to be processing stuff, either consciously or subconsciously, and, and provides that counterbalance. I used to be terrible at it. I ended up uh, not in a good place at one one point in my career. This is before I had you, Polly. I was just working too hard. I, I went to see my GP, broke down in tears and said, you know, it's, it's all getting on top of me. And she very wisely said, well, you need to take a fortnight off. I said, I can't take a fortnight off, I'm too busy. Three weeks later, I was off sick. Fortunately, quite quickly. And that was a big lesson for me. It took me a long time to learn that. I thought the way of, you know, dealing with all of this was just to work and work and work and work and work. And for a while, I managed that. And then I didn't. I made myself ill. Not very ill. I was fortunate. But um, I ensure in my leadership roles when I was managing people or now when I'm sort of supporting people as a, as a trustee, it's an active conversation. Every meet, every one-to-one -one I have, I want to know what's going on. I want to know if targets are being met and all the rest of it, but I want to know how they are. And I build relationships where they're able to say that to me without feeling that they're, they're sort of exposing themselves in a very vulnerable way. And part of that's talking about my own experiences that I have, I just have done. Because I don't think you can be an effective leader in this sector without that level of sort of self-knowledge and without a, that ability to know when you need to be, be taking a break. And the best way of doing it, I suppose, is to plan it in rather than being a reactive thing when you're already too stressed mm. out. Hugh, finally, it's been amazing to have you on the show. I would love to know who is your current day childhood hero? Somebody you personally admire who is uh, alive and kicking today and taking action to improve childhood and the lives of young people in some way? Um, I'm not going to name names, but it's those who are you know, pretty close to me because they'll be on the board of Become or the young people who've been advising the board who, even with very difficult experiences of care and who have very busy lives in all sorts of different ways, have come forward to support others who are going through the same experience they had. And uh, I just talked about the emotive stuff as a professional. Um, if you've got care experience and then you come and support become to try and make care a better place for others, that's not just professional emotive stuff, that's your life. And, it, and it's bringing back all sorts of, because you're exposing yourself to people's current different experiences. It's bringing back your own different experiences. So my heroes are those who have been in care 
who either through Become or in other ways, there's many of them on social media, um, are putting themselves out there, um, sometimes in quite a vulnerable way, um, trying to make things better for those who follow them. Thank you, Hugh. It's been a pleasure and a privilege to have you on the show. Um, I think we've all taken a lesson away about the outdoors, <laughs> the importance of self-care. Or embroidery. doesn't have to be outdoors. <laughs> or embroidery. We'll take that. I actually, I actually do that. Um, and I, I am grateful to you for illuminating what is a really challenging and upsetting topic, but giving us a ray of hope that we have made progress over the last generation. There is more to do, but we've come a long way. And I appreciate you giving us opportunity to reflect on that um, and and celebrate the hard work and commitment of people like yourself um, and others who are care experienced and giving back despite how challenging that may be. So thank you. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. My name is Laura Wyatt-Smith and you've been listening to Childhood Heroes. When I'm not recording podcasts, I'm working as a consultant and a coach to the nonprofit sector. If you'd like to find out more about what I do, please visit laurawyattsmith.com. <laughs>